Hey Church of the Beloved, thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Today's message is brought to us by Senior Pastor Clint Shamblett. He is preaching from 1 John chapter 2, verses 24 through 27. Good morning, Church of the Beloved. My name is Clint. I'm one of the pastors here. And we get to continue on in our John series, our first John series. Now, before I continue, I think I need to ask, based upon last week, how are we all doing, church? Uh, If you weren't here with us last week, uh, it was a very, very heady, very meta, very, very deep-thinking sermon. Basically, trying to show from Scripture that we are to love good things, but in doing so, Christ's exclusive love for us as his children means that we disdain bad things. We tried to walk through that. Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, it was a lot. I think that's just the simplest, clearest way I could say it. It was a lot. To try to say inclusion leads to hate, exclusion leads to inclusion. Honestly, it's it's a hard process. And as a pastor, uh, I'm going to do something very quickly for you, for us. Uh, can I dote on you as a pastor? Uh, can I just say, we handled that with robust maturity and humility. It was quite incredible. Uh, I have never had so many questions as I did last week, is maybe another way of saying it. And I was so happy to do so. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm not going to name them by name, but uh, somebody in the congregation number of months ago, came to me after a sermon I had preached three weeks prior, uh, and she had a list of questions. Uh, And it was fun to go through each and every one. Uh, Challenging. It was iron sharpening iron. And I think in summation of what she had told me was that church for her, uh, maybe rightly or wrongly, was kind of a uh, swallow the pill mentality. Here here it is, take it, shut up and move on. Uh, And actually what the scripture says, what John is saying to us, what Christ says to us is, come seek me. Now the term seeking is not take a pill and swallow it and and shut up and be happy. Uh, Seeking is questioning. Seeking is curiosity. Seeking is, is robust interaction with a living Christ, not a stoic, cold uh, piece of paper. He is a relationship Last week, we had a lot of seeking, a lot of curiosity. This week, my hope is to actually follow up with a how. Uh, One of the things that I love being part of COTB, I I truly, truly enjoy this. Uh, Pastor Abe and I uh, have different preaching styles, uh, and I love it in entirety. Uh, Today, uh, I'm going to steal a a playbook from Pastor Abe. Uh, I'm going to go how. not to bore you with this, but as pastors, you kind of have three roles that you sit in, prophet, priest, king. A uh, prophet asks why and is, is, is truth-telling. A priest sits with people, asks who, and a king asks what or how. Uh, now, what's great is uh, Pastor Abe sits more in the priestly category uh, with people. Uh, it, it's phenomenal to see him interact with us as a congregation uh, and, and welcome in new members and do that. Uh, I sit more in the camp of profit, but what happens within pastoral ministry is you can't stay there. You have to become all three. You can't just say, oh, I'm a prophet, I'm a priest, I'm a, I'm a king. You have to have all three. So today, uh, I'm going to steal 
a little bit more from Pastor Abe and talk about how. My hope, my goal, please hear this, my prayer, is to become extremely practical. Extremely, how, how do I take last week's sermon? If you weren't with us last week, go back and listen. How do I take exclusion? Exclusive love leads to inclusive behavior, and inclusive behavior leads to exclusive love of all people. How do we get that? Go back and listen last week. This week, I want to show you how. I want to show you two things. One, I want to say how John shows us how to not love bad things. I'm going to walk through. I'm going to give you verses, and then I'm going to pepper you with some application. How not to love bad things. And then secondly, I'm going to give you ways in which we cannot love bad things. You personally. One, I want to talk about how John says it. And two, I want to say how you can apply it. Exegeting, taking God's word and, and, and giving you some application for it. And then secondly, practical application, the lab. Lecture, lab, lecture, lab. That's what I'm hoping to do today. So first, let's start with what John says. Verse 24, he says this. John says, how not to love bad things. How do we, how do we, Pastor, how do we keep on from loving bad things? How do we love the right things? The first thing that John tells us in this life is this. You must remain, or he encourages us, what you heard was from the beginning remains in you. That's verse 24. What you heard from the beginning remains in you. And simply what John is telling us, how to love all people, how to be extremely, extremely exclusive with our views, but inclusive of all people, is to, they, to say this, heard what was from the beginning remains in you. Now this is a little bit tricky, this is a little bit uh, hard for us to understand, uh, and what I'm about to say is going to sound like I'm anti-intellectualism, and I, I am not uh, at all. It's going to sound like that, but please resist assuming that. I actually think uh, intellectualism, learning, uh, deep conversations about a lot of different books and a lot of different thinkers and a lot of different writers is good and robust. But what John says is what you heard from the beginning remains in you. Uh, and, and I was... Maybe this is the simplest way of saying it as I gear up to say I'm not anti-intellectual. It's actually a robust intellect that should make us uh, begin to understand and wrap around our arms more around doctrine. Let's say this. Typically, uh, when we do devotional or we do any sort of group study, when we come to scripture, there's always a question we ask each other or maybe you ask yourself is this. What do I think this passage is saying? Uh, if you've been there, if you've sat in that and said, hey, maybe in a big group, hey, what do you think this means? What do you think this means? And we go around and we share our opinion uh, of what this scripture means. Uh, here's what John's saying. And, and I think this is, pastorally, this is what he's shouting to us. And I'm going to soften the blow here in a second. Uh, but pastorally, what he's shouting is, no one cares about your opinion. That's like, oh, okay, John, I heard what was from the beginning remains in you. He's telling us, how do you not love bad things? How do you stay loving the good things? He says, church, please, what you heard from the beginning, remain in it with fidelity, with absolute abject authority to say, I'm going to remain in here. See, we, we do this thing where we go, hey, what, is, what is scripture really saying to us? What does this really mean? Uh, one of the places we go a lot for that is Sermon on the Mount from Jesus, which we're going to reference a little later. If you read some of the things on the Sermon on the Mount, it, it's crazy what Christ tells us to do. And if you're reading scripture, you go, he says, uh, if somebody asks you to walk one mile, walk two miles. And we go, what does that really mean? That church, can I tell you what that really means? <laughs> if somebody asks you to walk one mile with them, walk two. 
That's what it means. And we go, Pastor, come on. What else does it mean? Go above and beyond the call of duty when you're serving people. That's what it means. That's what it's telling us. When John says how you remain from going outside of orthodoxy, how you remain from going, believing in other loves, how you believe in gods of other places, not just gods of other religions, but gods of other idols of your heart, what he's telling us is this. Stop asking what I really think this means and start following it to the letter that you can possibly do it. Now here's here's maybe some more evidence for you. Uh, Right now there's two places in the world that... Christianity is exploding, and I mean exploding. Uh, It's China and South America. Now, what's wild about these two places is that in China, uh, numbers indicate that I think in 20 years, over half the Chinese population will be Christian. It's wild to think about. That's that's insane. The the biggest citizenship in the entire world in a couple decades will be majority Christian in a country, in a place that is overtly antagonistic towards Christianity. And South America, the same thing. If you interact with these leaders and with these authors and with these pastors down there, what's wild and what's crazy about these two areas of the world is Christianity is exploding. And if you were to see and to understand, if you were to ask them questions of what they believe about the Bible, they will say this. I've heard this. I've seen networks of pastors say this. They say, well, we believe the word of God is the word of God and we follow it the best we can. See, places in the world that Christianity is declining. The question, I used this last week, and maybe I need to flesh out a little bit more, is this understanding of progressivism within Christian doctrine. And that's not not the same as political, progressive, and, and politically conservative. They're wildly different inside the church. Progressive ideological understandings in the church mean this. Ah, the the Bible really isn't the authoritative word of God. We need to have we need to have a, a, a better understanding of it. In those places, typically in Europe and America, Christianity is on the decline. In places of the world that people are saying, this is the word of God, on it I will stand, Christianity is is erupting. Now, I don't know, this is where I said it's going to sound like I'm being anti-intellectual. I'm not. We should question aspects. We should learn. We should do textual criticism. We should do language studies. All of that is fantastic. But if in our studies we go away from what the church has always hold, what Jesus has taught and what the church has taught for thousands of years, something should clue us in. Something, something might be off. And the only reason I look at that is because I look at these other places and I say, this is compelling to me that people are grasping, clinging to Christianity in these two areas of the world. And the only way they're doing it is they're saying, we believe it. We my opinion doesn't matter about what I think Christ is saying. I follow his words because he is the only one to salvation and they are exploding. Now we can say, like I've heard from many people, I think I shared with you, I was interacting with a restaurant CEO one time and uh, he said, well, of course China's exploding. They have no hope. And so any, any sort of magical pill that they can swallow, they'll jump on. And I go, wow, that's really, really arrogant of you. <laughs> That's really, really, well, they're, Clint, they're just, they're less than. They don't have the robust study that we do. They're not as intellectual as we are. I think it's doing a disservice to people. I think it's doing a disservice to the Christian authors. I think it's doing a disservice to us that says, actually, the way in which, maybe I should just ask this, church, could you admit, could you please admit that when you approach scripture, 
maybe instead of saying, what do I really think this is saying? What if you just said, I'm going to try to follow this to the best of my ability. What if when the Sermon on the Mount says, if you have a tunic and somebody asks for it, give them your coat as well. Give them your under tunic. Give them both layers of your clothing. What instead you said, well, that, what this really means is it's hyperbolic. It's, it's hyperbolic. It's, it's really telling us, go, and be, go above and beyond generosity. Go, go above and beyond giving. What if literally you see somebody that asks for your coat and you give them all your clothes? Not right then. Like, go home and change. What if you, what if you gave them more than they ever asked for. And what if, church, what if that's exactly what Jesus meant? And what if we stopped saying, what does he really mean? And started saying, how do I really follow it? How much would your life change? How much would the world change? If we stopped saying, well, here's my opinion on it. And we started saying, I'm going to try to follow it the best of my ability. And here's my, here's my reason why. In the early church, just like in our day and age, John was speaking to a congregation that people were fleeing orthodoxy because other people were teaching new things. And he says, remain in what you heard. Don't, don't go elsewhere. Love the thing that was coming. Fidelity to scripture. Take a clue from our Chinese brothers and sisters, from our South American brothers and sisters. What if we can learn from them instead of them learning from us? What if we could take a playbook out of what they're writing? Complete fidelity to scripture. That's the first point I want to ask you. Secondly is this, verse 25 says, John says, if you remain in him, you are given what is promised to us, eternal life. Eternal life. Now, I think a lot and often we think to ourselves, this spirituality, this understanding of religion, this understanding of, of a journey that I'm on, uh, it really is to better me as a human. It's really to better society, civilization, so on and so forth. What if, church, what if being so singularly focused on eternal life changes us today when we don't have to think about society and culture and my family and anything else, but rather if what John says is true, to keep our eyes on eternity, it changes our reality. What if instead of saying, well, I have you know, this generation, I'm gonna give it on to the next generation, and you know how cultures change, and we need to go against the, the tide of culture. What if we stopped thinking and focusing on that? Um, what if, I, when I was learning how to drive, which apparently they don't teach in Chicago, uh, that is not something they teach in Illinois. Ooh. Uh, this little thing on the, it's a blinker. If you put it up, it goes this way. Put it down, it goes this way. It indicates where you're going. I don't know if everybody understands this. Those of us who go on the L train, you're like, I, I don't care. This is why I'm above ground. This is why I'm elevated up. What I was taught learning how to drive is you focused 10 seconds ahead of you. You didn't focus immediately in front of you. You focused 10 down the road because if you were to focus 10 seconds down the road, you could see everything in front of you. What John is saying is, if you look so eternal, you'll see everything. You'll see the entirety of Christ's love and the entirety of Christ's redemptive purpose, and you will start being the better driver today. If you start focusing so minutely, so specifically, so right in front of you, you won't be able to see the bigger picture. You won't be able to see what's ahead of you. Essentially, how to not be tempted to love bad things, look larger, look eternal, look grander, look for all of eternity, because it'll start changing how you live today, I promise you. And if it doesn't, 
If you haven't sat in front of a museum artistic installation and you haven't been just wowed by it, you haven't stood back and taken it all in, you haven't been blown away by the glory and it hasn't made you want to focus in on the particulars of the artist and what they did, I don't think you've truly appreciated the piece of art. If you, if you focus on one stroke and one stroke only and you don't start with the big picture and focus in, you'll never appreciate what that artist did. God's artistry is eternal. That changes are immediate. Don't try to compete the two. Look 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40, eternity down the road. And it'll change how you live today. You'll stop loving bad things and start loving good things. Next verse 27 says this. You do not need for anyone to teach you. Okay, now really quick. I'm gonna put a pen in this. I'm gonna come back to it in a second. It says you do not need anyone to teach you because the spirit that abides in you shows you what you're teaching. I'm gonna get into this in a moment because uh, it says I can't teach you on it, but yet I'm gonna try to teach you on it. And you're like, that doesn't make sense. But teaching you what I can't teach is still a teaching, is it not? Uh, the only people that care about that are, are people who like reading literature and philosophy and no one else cares. I get it. We're gonna get there, I promise. Verse 27 continues on and says, remain in him. These are the words of John, it says remain in him. And here's why. It says, if you want to love good things and stop loving bad things, remain in him and go nowhere else. Have fidelity to him in all of his scripture. Don't think that you have opinions about it, but receive from him. Try to be obedient to his words. All of these are good and glorious. And why? John says, remain in him. Uh, I have a practice I like doing. Um, every time I get a book from somebody, uh, I see how old they are. Uh, and, and oftentimes you're like, wow, that's, that's really weird. I'm like, I know. Um, I like reading old people or dead people. These are the two people that I love reading, and here's why I like reading them. Um, dead people have their whole lives is canonized. They, they can't add things to their lives or take away things from their lives. It's done. It's signed, sealed, delivered. It's over. When I read dead people, when I read people that are 200, 300 years old and literature 100 years old, what can't be taken away is controversy yet to come for them. They can't abandon the faith from what they, they wrote. Uh, sometimes you read these pastors. I, there was one particular pastor who was in the South, uh, and I read his books early on. Uh, he was, I think, 33, 34. I read his book, soaking it up, thought it was so great. And then all of a sudden, 10 years later, seven years later, he had abandoned orthodoxy. He had gone away from it. And I'm reading this book, and I go, what do I do with this book now? It was true at the time, but he has gone away from it. And what John is saying is, it was true what he was saying, but now it's, it's tainted, isn't it? It's a different lens from which you see. See, when, when I have dead people, their whole lives are out on display. Everything is there, and I know leading up to what I'm reading, it's done, it's over. When John tells us, remain in Christ, remain in the guy that you heard from the beginning, remain in the guy that is dead, buried, rose from the grave, and ascended to heaven, and whose ministry is canonized, what it's saying is this. With Christ, you don't have to fear a controversy coming. It's signed, sealed, and delivered. He's ours. He's, he's yours. He's, he's everybody's. And there's no way that I can go back and taint what had happened because it's all out there for the history books. See, when it says remain in him, his views can't change because his views was on the cross. Finality. He said, it is finished. Uh, what views in 10 years do you currently hold that will change in a decade from now? 
I guarantee you, you have many of them. I guarantee it. Uh, how do I know? I, I had uh, this person in my life that every time I would see somebody else with a kid before I had children, I would say something like, well, here's what you should do. And the person would be like, you know what you should do? You should write a book on that. I'm like, I should write a book on that. You're absolutely right. It would be wildly, people would love it. And then I'd become a parent, I'm like, oh no, my book would have sucked. <laughs> Why? Because I don't know what I don't know. Because life changes. I have no concept of what I don't know. I must be always learning. I must be always humble. I must be always submissive. And that's for me personally. What views do you have that in 10 years will be wildly different? Wildly change? And what if I forced you right now, today, what if I forced you to, to complete, to canonize your views right now? Would your opinion last in 10 years or... Would you be standing on the only firm ground possible, Christ's words that cannot change, that cannot be different? Because they're canonized, they're in scripture, they're forever. Remain in him. And also read old dead people, they're fantastic. What does this look like? That was what John tells us. How does this look? I'm gonna give you some practical application. Again, two hows, I'm gonna give you two understandings of how to do it. And then the third, I'm gonna teach you what I can't teach you. And we'll, we'll get through that. And I'm going to pepper you with examples from scripture as well as stories, because here's what I understand about the proclamation of God's good word to us, is that wisdom is necessary. It dictates we handle it with care. Yes, we're obedient. Yes, we're specific. But at the same time, it, scripture doesn't tell us that I should put on my right indicator light when I'm turning right. But I should start the turn 50 feet before I'm right at the light, instead of stopping at the red light and then stopping at the green light and doing a 90 degree turn. That's also not good, people. Do you understand this? I'm trying. It doesn't tell us how to do that. And yet, the Bible should inform us how to drive. How does it do so? I want to give you, I just want to pepper you with examples, pepper you with stories, pepper you with scripture. First, how to love good things and resist loving bad things. How do you disdain bad things? How to do so is to understand that God always changes you even if that means injuring you, confusing you, or making you go the long way. God always changes you, even if that means injuring you, confusing you, or making you go the long way. Uh, Genesis 32 has this understanding of Jacob is wrestling with God. Genesis 32, 30 says this, so Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God's face, I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Now, what had happened with Jacob is, is he interacts with God. He doesn't know it's God. He interacts with him in the, uh, in the darkness of night. And he tells God, God, I'm, I'm going to wrestle with you. I'm going I'm to come back. I'm going to come against you. We're going to interact. And God chooses to wrestle with him, chooses to allow him to do so. And at the end of it, just before uh, daybreak, just before he understands and has the full revelation of God, God, God breaks him. He breaks his hip. He, he causes him injury. And we look at them and go, wow, God is, God is punishing Jacob. I don't want to wrestle with God. I, I, should just, I should just swallow my pill and take it, shouldn't I? No, 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 no. Jacob wrestled with God. And it says, look at, look at Jacob's word. Look at as, after he interacts with God, after he comes face to face with God, he says this. Jacob called the place Peniel saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. See, I think all too often we think of God as this like really friendly, cool guy that hangs out with us. When people see him fully, they're broken. 
the fact that you and I aren't broken and shred to pieces, this is uh, uh, Indiana Jones, an old movie, I know, I understand. When they open up the Ark of the Covenant and, and the Ark goes out and Indy tells all the people, don't look at it. And they all close their eyes and the Germans all look at it and go, ah. What happens to them? They're blasted. It's like an atomic bomb goes off. They're, they're put to pieces. That's the power of God. Now, Ark of the Covenant aside, that's a good Hollywood story. When you interact with God, he's a powerhouse. He's an atomic bomb. Why wouldn't you walk away changed from interacting with him? Unless you think of God so little that he's just a friend. He is a friend, but church, he's so much more. Jacob wrestled with God. Please wrestle with God, but please understand this. Oh, church, please understand this. If you want to come face to face with the almighty creator of every single cosmic deity ever insisted upon, you will come away changed. And if you don't, I don't think you've interacted with the cosmic God. I think you've interacted with a, a small kitten, not the lion. Matthew 5.30 says this, even more so, God asks us to change. Even that means injuring, confusing, or making us go the long way. Matthew 5.30 says this, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. And you might be saying, pastor, no, 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 pastor, pastor. He was, he was making a point to people. He was, he was trying to be, again, hyperbolic. He, he was overstating something. I don't think he was. I think Christ literally means if you have a piece of you that needs to be removed to accept the kingdom, it's better to remove that thing and accept the kingdom than stay whole and have no kingdom. It is better for you to lose a piece of yourself and receive Christ than it is to not receive Christ and keep all of you. How do I know? Christ left completely poured out. He says, as he's sitting in the garden, please, God, let this cup go from me. I don't, I don't want to do this. It's going to take of me. I'm going to die. I'm going to be poured out. Just like communion, just like the wine, just like the body broken and poured out for us. How do I know that God wants us changed, even if that means injuring, confusing us, or making us go the long way? Because he did it to his son. He loves you enough to tell you what pieces of you need to be removed so that you can accept him in totality. There's this really, really good book called The Princess and the Goblin. Uh, and it's, it's just a, a phenomenal book. I was encouraged to read it by a pastor. Uh, George MacDonald has this fairy tale. And in this fairy tale, this little girl has a fairy godmother and she gives her a ring. And on this ring, it's this string, this mythical string that connects back to the fairy godmother. And she tells her, wherever you are at, if you follow this string, this ring will always lead you back to me. What happens in, in, in the story is that enemies come for this princess. So she runs, she flees, she gets the ring, she puts it on, it's under a pillow, and it starts leading her out of the house. And so she goes, okay, good. It's, it, grandmother's getting me away from enemies, and it leads her out of the house. Then it leads her up a hill. It goes, oh, good, grandmother wants me away from the house because something bad's going to happen. It goes up the, up the hill. And then it starts leading her down into these caverns, into these caves, and she goes, uh, grandmother, what? What's happening? Home's back over there. Your house, your room is over there. Your safety is over there. And it keeps on leading her down into these caverns. And she goes into these caves and she goes past all these horrible, horrible creatures. And finally it ends in this pile of rocks. And the string goes into the rocks. And so she has to start removing all these rocks. And in it, she finds a young boy who's been trapped there. 
And she says, oh my goodness, I, I can't believe you're here. And he goes, oh, thank God you're here. Let's, let's go. Let's go back to safety. Where's your home? Let's go back. Let's go through the cave. And he goes, no, no, no. What the princess says is the string is leading us further down in the cave. We need to go. And he goes, that's insane. Why would we ever go further into danger? Why would we go closer to the horrible creatures that go bump in the night? And she goes, I trust my grandmother. My grandmother said this will always lead to her. So they go further and further into the cave and eventually they find a staircase and the staircase goes right up to the grandmother's room and they're safe and he's safe and they're both safe. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. The longest way around is the shortest way home sometimes. Would you believe that God is asking you to do some things, to subtract some things, to remove some things of you because actually it's the shortest way home? It's a long way. It's a grueling way. Jacob was broken. He was injured. He couldn't walk. Countless people, Matthew, he says, cut off your hand if it's going to lead you to sin. What if C.S. Lewis was right? The longest way around is the shortest way home, and God's way is much better than our way. Would you be willing to admit that? It says this in Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. See what it says here is those who are called unto God, his purposes are good. We might be asking to ourselves, what are you, God, what are you doing in my life? God, what are you doing in my life? Why did you leave me here? Why, why am I suffering this? Why, am I, why do I have this in front of me? Why do I work for this horrible boss? Why does my body rebel against me? And what if, just what if, church, when we stand in front of eternity, we will have a complete picture. We will know in full why he asks us to do certain things in scripture. Why does, why does scripture ask us to give a large chunk of our money to, to people? <laughs> that's, that's injuring us. That's giving us up part of us. That's, that's my hard-earned money. What if it has nothing to do with money? What if it has everything to do with your heart being completely and totally in submission to God for the better things, not for your things? What if becoming less is the way to go forward? What if, hypothetically, the first shall be last and the last shall be first? What if God's working together all things for those who love him? Just what if, church? Secondly, Christ shows us what being somebody who loves good things and disdains bad things tangibly looks like. I already referenced the Sermon on the Mount, so let me show you a couple things. If you were to go anywhere in Scripture and say, how do I know how to act like a Christian? Uh, Sermon on the Mount is a great way to start. Uh, it's, don't, don't read it. I, I sent out an email this week that said, don't read Judges unless you want to ask questions. And if you're squeamish, don't, don't read it. It's, it's very difficult. If you want to understand what it's like to be a Christian, uh, don't read Sermon on the Mount unless you're ready to come and follow him. As a matter of fact, the rich young ruler is somebody who comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I'm so good, I'm so great, I do everything so wonderfully. And Jesus says, okay. Have you followed all my commands? Yes, I'm perfect. Okay, give everything that you have, literally everything. When the Bible says everything, it doesn't mean 90%. It means give everything away and come follow me. And the rich young ruler says, ah, I can't do that. And he walks away. If you want to read the Sermon on the Mount, be prepared for very, very challenging things to come our way. It says this, Matthew 5, verse 3, to be tangibly understanding who Jesus thinks that we are supposed to be gives us a tangible evidence of what it is like to love good things and disdain bad things. Matthew 5, 3 says this, <clears throat> those who are poor in spirit. Now, I think this is one of the things that we do a, a, a job sometimes at trying to say what this really means. 
Here's what this means. That you are poor in spirit, meaning spiritually you understand you're in poverty and you need Christ. That's what it means. It means I am spiritually not good, not sufficient. Uh, many of us have applied for grants or maybe scholarships in life. And on the scholarship, it asks very, very, very personal questions, does it not? How much do you make? How much is your, your assets? Do you have other uh, financial income? And we have to answer honestly. Now, if you're able to answer, if you're able to say, well, no, I can, I can actually cover living expenses as well as my <clears throat> tuition, which is not a great group of people. But if you were, if you were to say, no, I can handle it, the scholarship would be like, well, then you don't need this. You don't need a Pell Grant. You don't, you don't need these grants. You don't, you're, you're rich. You don't need me. But those who need help apply for grants and get it based upon their need. Now, church, when it says, how do you love good things and disdain bad things? You be somebody. You are somebody that understands my spirit is poor. And I need somebody who is far above me to give me what I don't have. If you're not in need, why would you need Christ? If you say, I don't need Christ, I don't need God, I don't need his word, I'm fine. Okay. Then he will say to you, you're, you're like the rich young ruler who I said, give everything. If you're fine, go on your way. And it says the rich young ruler went away sad. He didn't go away happy, he went away sad to a life filled with richness. Church, would you be willing to say, I am poor, I am in poverty in spirit, and I need Christ? I'm gonna jump down, Matthew 5, verse 39 says, <clears throat> somebody strikes you on one cheek, turn the other cheek to them. Now, uh, I, I witnessed one person, literally witnessed one person do this uh, in a very, very weird interaction. We were in San Francisco, um, they were street preaching, they were very antagonistic towards somebody. Come to find out later, they were trying to be antagonistic, to try to get hit, to show this verse in actuality. They got hit. I know, it was wild. I was like, oh my gosh. And then, and then they said, in front of everybody, I will turn my other cheek. And I was like, oh no. Oh, we've... <laughs> We've gone too far. <laughs> oh, church. See, when Jesus says if somebody, if somebody hits you on a cheek, he doesn't, he doesn't say punch, he doesn't say knockout, he doesn't say UFC brawl. He says if somebody strikes you, if somebody insults you, if somebody, this is, this is where I'm not anti-intellectual, this is where we do need to understand scripture. If somebody insults you publicly, you're to take their insult and not take offense and offer them to insult you more. This is not condoning, this is not saying, if you're hit, keep on being hit. That's not what it's saying at all. And my buddy who did that, he did in fact pick like a very small person to antagonize. And I was like, pick that guy over there. He's like, no, I don't want that. I'm like, uh-huh, that's what I thought. It's not, it's not saying violence is good. It's not saying allow violence. What it's saying is if somebody insults you, what Jesus is saying is the cheek, other words, elsewhere in scripture, says greet each other with a, a brotherly, sisterly kiss. It's saying welcome into relationship, welcome into community, give affection towards. If somebody disrespects you, somebody insults you, somebody doesn't welcome you in, don't take offense. Actually offer them to continue to disrespect you more. Why? What does that do? 
Pastor, what does that, what does that, what does that do if I'm disrespected? It means that you're so respected by Christ that nobody can take anything from you. It means that somebody who is foundationally poor in spirit understands, I don't have a leg to stand on. I don't have a right to stand on. I'm not going to think less of myself, but I'm not going to think of myself at all. Wait, what? Wait, what? Selfishness is thinking of yourself a great deal, not higher up, but always constantly thinking about yourself. What Christ says is, think about them. When you're insulted, think about them. When you're, when you're hated against, think about them. When you're come against, think to yourself, why did they do this? What's going on in their life? My family hated me for this question. We were sitting down. I don't say this story. I, it was a, this was a total spirit moment. I don't typically think like this. I'm typically a curmudgeon old person. So we were sitting down to uh, dinner one time, and this waitress was just really, really terrible just the worst waitress I've ever experienced. And my family and I were, we were talking, we're like, we should just get up and leave. What's going on? And I just asked her, I was like, hold on a second. So I just said, hey, are you doing okay? She sat down in the booth. I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> we're changing things now. She said, my partner just left me. I have a five-year-old at home. And sometimes I have to leave him there alone because I don't have childcare. And I don't know what to do because I fret so much. And I no longer have security or money to do so. And this just happened last week. And she gets up and leaves the table. My dad looks at me and goes, don't ever ask that question again. <laughs> do you know what? It wasn't me paying the bill, so I get to pray. My father left a giant tip. Why? She was insulting us. She was disrespecting us. She wasn't giving us good service. I'm the customer. The customer's always right. She had reason to. What if when people insult you, you instead think of them instead of think of self? That's what Jesus is telling us. Now, if you don't want to be like that in the kingdom, I encourage you, don't become a Christian. <laughs> if you don't want to ask, hey, how's your, are you, how you doing? Don't become a Christian because it demands a lot of you. And lastly, the teaching I told you I couldn't teach you on, let me teach you on. It says the spirit assures you that you desire God. It says in John, John tells us there's, there's a, aspect of the spirit that, that I can't teach you. you can't, no one should be able to teach you. And we think, ah, pastor, see, look, you, I'm fine on my own. Stop teaching me. Stop talking to me. Stop telling me this. Mm, hold on. Come in with me. It says to us, it can't teach us the assurance that we have in Christ. Uh, many of you have given me great recommendations to restaurants and I've tried to eat at a bunch of them. Um, they've all been fantastic. You can tell me all day long, Here's, here's the flavor, here's the richness, here's the ingredients, here's how they make it, here's what's great about it, and I, I love every moment of it. But until I taste it on my lips, are you teaching me my experience about it, or are you teaching me about the food? See, I can tell you about Christ. I could tell you about his son. I could tell you about his salvation. You know what I can't teach you? To long for it. When, I, when you have that food, when you have Many of us went home for the holidays and maybe your mom or dad or your family or your friend cooked you your favorite meal, right? You're like, oh, that's good. It's the term home cooking. The home cooked meal. Oh, it just, it instantly brings me back. It instantly brings me into relationship. Can I teach you about that feeling? I can't, can I? I can, I can describe it. I can try to inform you. I could try to tell you why you need to long for it. It's good to long for it, but I can't, I can't impose a longing into you. It's impossible. 
I can't make you want Christ. I can't make you want to live a lesser life for Christ. I can't do so. I can tell you why it's good. I can tell you, I can proclaim what the Bible tells me. I can't make you long for it. The only reason that you know that you know that you know that you know you want God, that you're seeking God, that you, have, that you, you want more of him, is actually you already have him. The only way that you know good home-cooked me- meals, if you've had a good home-cooked meal, the only way you could tell me that I really want this restaurant is, in fact, if I've eaten there. If I haven't eaten there, I can't tell you I want it. Church, the thing I can't teach you is connection with Christ. Because either you have it or you don't. Either you know what it's like and you long for it. Oh, church, you long for it. Uh, there's... Uh, hit the bingo card. Medical students, I apologize. I'm about to use an analogy that's probably wrong, so bear with me. I have heard that people who are missing limbs have phantom limb syndrome, or a more medical-specific instance of what that is, where they think the arm is still there if they lose it. They miss it. They feel it. They have phantom pains. They, They go to move even though there's nothing there to move. Church, if you long for God... What that means is that you once had connection to him and you're missing it now. And the good news is he can always connect with us. The good news is he's always there with us. Luke 15, 11 has the story of the lost son. We, we call it the prodigal son. Prodigal just means crazy, uh, like, like flamboyant. Lost son, maybe is a better way of saying it. When the lost son goes, he leaves the father. He gets out of the house. He goes and lives an exuberant life, a flamboyant life. The father couldn't teach him, couldn't show him to want connection to him, could he? He could give him gifts. He can give him food. He can give him a place to stay. But what did it take for the lost son to come back? He longed for home, it says. He longed for home. Church, if you long for a father who is so good that he gives good gifts, if you long for a friend who will never abandon you, if you long for a savior that doesn't demand of you but rather demands of himself, if you long for somebody, a lover, who is always going to give to you, always serve you and never take from you, but ask you, ask you, invite you to change, that's what we have in Christ. That's what the lost son tells us. You will never do anything from God if you don't want him first, I promise you. Uh, I, last week I said I had a lot of questions. One of the questions last week uh, that I was able to answer was this analogy that I gave about how we seek Christ first and then ourselves is the story of my children. Uh, I have three children. I hope to pay for their college. Um, I love children. Two things are true. I love children. I hope to pay for my children's college if they choose to go do that. Now, because I love all children, am I responsible for paying for everybody's college. No, of course not. I couldn't do so. What necessitates me giving gifts to my children? It's very simple. They have to be my children. They have to come under my family home. They have to be incorporated in with me. See, we think all too often God would never ask of me anything that he, that he doesn't want good things for me. Of course he wants good things. But if you're in his house, you get the blessings. If you're outside the house, You're not asked to do anything. And you don't want that from him. You would never expect it from him. Why do we treat God that way? Why do we say, God, I want want your your way and your word and your things, but 
I'm going to be the, the rich young ruler. I'm going to go my own way. He says, you can do that. Of course you can do that. But you're in your own jurisdiction at that point. I'm not going to force you in. I'm not going to demand you be part of my family. But if you're part of my family, here's what you get. Do you see? I can't teach you to long for God if you want God. That's the, that's the aspect that only you and the Father and the Spirit and the Son can do. That's it. I can't teach you that. I can show you. I can, I can proclaim to you. I can't make you want it. Just like you could proclaim every restaurant that I should go. You, I mean, I, I guess you could kidnap me and take me to food, which, by the way, do so. I, I, that's a great thing. I would never say no to that. If you're like, oh, get in the car. I'm like, oh, no, I have to go with you. <laughs> and then I'll jump out because you don't know how to drive. But <laughs> we'll take the L train together. <laughs> I can't teach you to want it. I can proclaim, you can proclaim. The only way that you'll seek God is if you've already had him. The only way that you want him is by longing. The only way that I can teach you that is I can't. I could show you, and then it's up to you and the spirit to understand that. Do you see? How do you become somebody that wants good things? Ah, you already have the good thing in Christ. How do you become somebody that disdains bad things? You remain in him. How do you become somebody that longs for the good things in life? You already long for Christ and he will change you. He will never leave you. If it means injuring you, confusing you, or making you the long way, he will do so. Why? Because you have your prize. It's Christ. I hope you've received some of this. I hope this has been practical, how you can change. Maybe here's a very, 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 very specific thing. The next time you do devotional, the next time you do have a communion group, don't ask the question, what do you think? What do you think about this verse? Don't ask that. Ask this of each other. What are we going to do to obey this? Ah. What are we going to do to obey this? And then encourage one another. And stop saying, well, you need to long for this. You need to, no, 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 no. I can't teach you that. You either want it or you don't. And if you don't want it, why would I ever ask you to follow Christ if you don't want Christ? That's very unloving of me, isn't it? But those who do follow Christ, I want to say, follow him. Because even if he injures you, even if he asks you to remove something about yourself, even if he confuses you and takes you the long way, in the end, it's because he is God and we are not. And in 10 years, my views are going to change. His word never will. Why? Because he signed, sealed, delivered, death on the cross, no more change. As he said, it is finished. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to this week's COTV Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us, you can visit us online at cotv.life. God bless and have a great week.